You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Good morning, everyone. As Bob says, my name is Anthony, and it is a joy to be with you this morning. And for anyone here who is either visiting family or friends, or if the holiday has enticed you to come check out a church this morning, welcome. Uh, Let me be another face to welcome you. We are so excited that you are here. And in case you're wondering, yes, our snacks are always this good. Uh, So like Bob said, my name is Anthony. I'm a pastoral resident here at Liberty, and I have the honor and joy of preaching through our text this morning. But before we jump in, I want to give you all a bit of a warning, because some of you have probably come here fully expecting to hear the story of the birth of Jesus. You already have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 2, and you are already thinking about the shrapnel of wrapping paper waiting for you tomorrow morning. I get it. But this morning, instead of making our way through Luke 2 or Matthew or John, we're going to spend our time looking at Psalm 89, a psalm that will in many ways challenge our expectations. Because as we read this psalm, and especially as we get toward the end, you're going to be thinking to yourself much like I did This is a little dour for a Christmas Eve service, isn't it? You put the resident up there on Christmas Eve and it's all doom and gloom. Instead, shouldn't we put a nice bow on this thing, tell the story of Jesus being born in a manger, and save the the dour stuff for, say, February, when it's already kind of dark and dreary around here? I thought the same thing. Believe me, I was on your side. But as I began to read and study and think on this psalm, I realized I was wrong. And if we take a few moments to really sit and consider this text, it is the perfect primer for what we celebrate on Christmas Day. Because what we're going to wrestle through in this text is what we do when God promises something but he doesn't seem to deliver. Because this psalm begins with the author celebrating the faithfulness of God, the promise of God, only to point his finger back at God, mourn the suffering all around him, and ask God, where are you? Where is your promise? Where is your love? A question that I'm sure we have found ourselves all asking at some point And if you are honest, a question that many of you probably find yourself asking right now. And so as we read this text, let it make you a little bit uncomfortable. Let its somberness and yearning for just a few small moments shake you out of the holiday cheer and let it raise the questions you try to wrap up for the Christmas season. Because this text raises questions that we are all asking. But on Christmas, we celebrate the answer. So keep your finger in Luke 2. Go home and read that through with your friends and family. Please do that. But for right now, let's turn to Psalm 89. 
Psalm 89, starting in verse 1. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is as mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scatter your enemies with your mighty arm. Now skip down to verse 19. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm shall also strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, my highest kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once and for all, I have sworn by my holiness and I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies, Selah. But now, You have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You've breached his walls. You've laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all of his enemies rejoice. You've also turned back the edge of his sword and have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease. 
You have cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Selah. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short time is? For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, as we approach this difficult text this morning, remind us of your great love for us. Show us the heart of Christ that is revealed to us. And as you reflect on these words, let us be honest with ourselves about the fears and the doubts that we hold, but confront those with the truth of your gospel so that we may behold your kindness toward us. Amen. So now, before jumping into this somewhat complicated psalm, we have to let ourselves into its world a little bit. We need to have a basic understanding of the context and events that are unfolding around the psalm and understand what he's seen to make him write these words. Because the psalmist was a, a real person who penned these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but also in response to real events that were going on in the world around him. And so from the outset, we see the psalmist looking at two distinct times in the history of Israel, a nation that he was a member of. First, we see him looking back to Israel's golden era, where Israel was united, a time when David sat on the throne and a time when the nation of Israel was prospering. And then we see a snapshot of Israel hundreds of years later, divided, being taken over by Babylon, its king being forced from the throne and being taken off into exile. And so we see a time of prosperity where the promise and love of God were evident and a time of calamity where it seems as though God had broken his promise and had withdrawn his love from his people. And so as we navigate our text this morning, we're going to break it down into three categories, love promised, love lost, and love restored. Love promised, love lost, and love restored. And so first, we're going to start with love promised. This theme of love promised really runs through the first half of the psalm in verses 1 through 37, where the, arth, where the author is hearkening back to Israel during its golden age during its time of prosperity. And we will see that he is laser focused on one major idea. There is really one theme that runs through these verses that he is continually referencing and stringing his arguments around. God's promise of steadfast love. His promise of steadfast love. 
verses one through four capture this idea really well and create this sort of launching pad from which the author will end up pleading his case before God. And in these opening verses, the author is emphasizing that God has promised to love his people with this steadfast love. And this idea of steadfast love is a translation from the word that is used for God's covenant love. And as one scholar puts it, God's covenant love is a persistent and unconditional tenderness, kindness, and mercy to his people. A persistent and unconditional tenderness, kindness, and mercy to his people. And so the psalmist is beginning this whole thing, proclaiming that this is how God has promised to love all of those who are his, with this steadfast covenantal love. And then from this promise, the psalmist explains how God has shown this love already to Israel in the past and how we will show it again in the future. First, he looks back to how God has miraculously delivered his people from bondage in Egypt. In verse 10, the psalmist makes reference to this Rahab, who the Lord crushed like a carcass. And at first reading, we should be asking, okay, who is Rahab and why did they deserve to be crushed? It's a, it's a fitting question. But Rahab was not a person. Instead, Rahab was a piece of ancient Egyptian mythology and was the way the psalmist was referencing God's rescue of Israel from captivity in Egypt. And being that we just all came out of a study looking at the life of Moses and the Exodus, this is something we should all be familiar with as time and time again in the Exodus account, we see God fighting for his people. And then looking back, and then after looking back, the author looks forward, changing the focus to what God has done in rescuing his people to what he will do. And in verse 19, we see this point of view shift as the author goes from um, reciting all the things that God has done to reciting the promises of God back to him, telling God what he promised he would do. He reminds God that God had promised that the throne of David, the king of Israel, would be established forever, and that God's steadfast love would remain with him, and that his enemies would not be able to overthrow him. And if we do kind of a quick fact check on what the author is saying here, everything he's saying is right. This is exactly what God had promised to David all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And once this promise is given, it's reiterated all throughout the scripture. Everything the author is saying about God has been true. God did promise that the offspring of David would inherit this eternal, unshakable throne. God, God had promised he would never forget his covenant, that he would not remove his steadfast love from his people. And the author is reminding God of these promises and reciting the very words of God back to him. And now before moving on, I want to park here for just a moment. And I've already read this whole psalm. And so you are all aware of the giant narrative cliff we are all about to drive over together. But before we hit the gas and we take that plunge, I want to quickly stop and ask this. 
Do we pray like the psalmist is praying here? Do we ever speak to God this way? Do we take the time to recite God's words and promises back to him, to remind God of what he has promised, what he has done? We have just come out of a prayer series during the summer that I hope was both convicting and helpful. And I hope that it, and I hope that it helped you see the great need for prayer in your life and in the life of our church. And it gave you, uh, and it caused you to deepen your need for prayer and tools of how to do that. But even in coming off of a prayer series, and even after preaching a few of those sermons myself, I still find that my prayer life is often marked by prayers that feel resoundingly hollow. So many times I am sitting there just not knowing the right words to pray, and I can't find the right way to package what I'm trying to communicate before God. And I'm sure that I am not alone in this, that many of you in this room have been at that point as well. And so even though this is a very late addition, but will still be delivered before Christmas, let me offer you another tool to add to your prayer toolbox. And that tool is this, argue with God, argue with him. Pastor and theologian Tim Keller, in reflecting on this very Psalm says this, God invites you through this text to argue with him, to give theological reasons to God for what we ask and explain how they fit in with his character, salvation, and goals for the world. And by theological reasons, I don't mean that you need to prepare like a PowerPoint presentation with five syllable words, Puritan quotes, and a cool starfade transition, right? That, that's, that's not what I'm saying. But instead, give God reasons for your prayer. Reasons that are grounded in what he has promised and what he has done and what he has told us about himself. God, you said you are here with me, but I feel so alone. God, you said that I have been set free from sin, and yet I find that sin has such a firm grip on me. God, you said that you would supply our needs. But have you heard of inflation? And this by no means will guarantee that God answers our prayers in the way that we expect him to, or even in some of the ways that we want him to. Sometimes he will, but as we will see in the rest of this psalm, God often responds to prayer in much different and often greater ways than we can ever expect. But as we remind God of his promise, of what he's done, of what he's like, we are also reminding ourselves. And if we're honest, we're probably the ones that need reminding. And as we begin to align God's promises and truth with what we bring to him in prayer, with what we desire, with what we yearn for, we are forced to see how self-centered our prayers and hearts often are. And so as you pray, pray God's words back to him. Give him reasons for your prayers that align with his own. Tim Keller continues his quote from earlier and says, as we pray this way, 
we will both deepen our understanding of God's ways and come away with the real sense that we have cast our burden on him. And so as the author spends these opening 37 verses explaining and immersing in God's promise of steadfast love and this guarantee that this descendant of David would rule forever, it can begin to sound like so many of the Psalms we've heard before. Psalms that speak in this beautiful poetic language of God's grandeur and his love. Psalms that inform many of our own worship songs and songs that make great art prints we hang around our house. But then we look down at verse 38, and we see this abrupt change. We see that the first 37 verses, this declaration of God's love and promise, have all been a setup for this very moment. This moment where the author pulls the rug out from under us. This moment where the author can't square his present reality with the promises that God has made, and he cannot understand how they both can be true at once. Because while the first half of this psalm is centered on God's steadfast love, the second half is the author pointing his finger back at God and accusing him of breaking that promise. That the love of God has been lost. That God had renounced his covenant that instead of being full of faithfulness and full of love for his anointed, for this offspring of David, that he is full of wrath and anger. So this is point two, love lost. Because the latter half of this psalm is reflecting on the invasion of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, who had breached the city walls, who had destroyed the temple, who took the current king, who was an offspring of David, took him into exile, but not before killing his sons in front of him. And all these events are recorded for us in 2 Kings chapter 25. And so as you take a moment to put yourself in this author's shoes, you can begin to feel the devastation of this event. Everything he held close, everything he had hoped for his whole life was literally going up in smoke all around him. And please don't read this psalm as like the journal entry of a particularly disgruntled individual. But this psalm was included in the songbook of ancient Israel. Uh, So this may have been written by an individual or a small group of people. What this psalm here is describing isn't the thoughts of a single person, but it's meant to mirror the thoughts and feelings of an entire community of people. And this whole community, through the words of the psalm, are crying out to God. Remember that king you promised? Remember that offspring of David who would rule forever? That offspring is being carted off into exile. Remember that throne he would rule from? It's currently burning to the ground. Remember how you rescued us from Egypt with your mighty arm and with your mighty axe? Those are now being leveled against us instead of for us. And as we read verses 38 through 45, each one jolts us a little more. Each accusation lob against God, it makes us increasingly more and more uncomfortable. Great Christmas Eve text, right? And we are left asking the question, does God truly love his people? Does God keep his promise? And this may be a question that you have found yourself asking. 
And maybe you are here this morning and this question has been gnawing at you for a long, long time. You may be here and you've been a Christian for a long time, but lately or over the last few years, you have endured tragedy after tragedy. And in the deepest, darkest corners of your heart, you question whether God has forgotten you or overlooked you or just isn't there like he once was. Or maybe you are here and you are newer to Christianity and you are desperately trying to follow Jesus, but it's just not going like you thought it would. You try to spend a somewhat regular time in your Bible. You try to pray and you come to church as often as you can. And yet life is still so hard and you feel like you were clawing by each and every day. Or maybe you are here and you haven't been back to church for a while. And you are here because a family member or a friend kind of talked you into it or because going to church on Christmas Eve for a reason you can't explain just kind of feels right. But the second that Jesus and faith are mentioned, you inwardly kind of roll your eyes because you've, da- you've walked down that road before and you found that God just isn't real or that God just doesn't care because how could a God that is loving and just and kind allow for the things that, have, that are happening in the world and the things that have happened to you? And if anything I described resonates with you at all, I hope that you feel seen by the words of this psalm. And I hope you find solace in the fact that the words of God himself, inspired by his spirit, doesn't pull any punches here. And it gives you words and images and a voice to your doubts. But know that the words of scripture don't just give voice to our questions, but it gives us an answer. It gives us an answer. And so now let's take a look at the end of the psalm and talk about our third point, love restored. Love restored. At first, we may be tempted to jump down to verse 52, the final verse of the psalm, where it says, blessed be the Lord forever and ever. Amen. Tell ourselves, well, look at that. It ends on a happy note. Kind of close our Bibles and peace out. But not so fast. We will end on a high note, but not that one. Because verse 52 isn't so much an end to this psalm, but it's an end to the book of this book of Psalms. Um, the entirety of the book of Psalms is subdivided into smaller books. And with the end of this psalm comes the end of the third book of Psalms as a whole. And so we aren't really meant to read verse 52 as concluding this psalm individually, but instead it concludes this collection of psalms that is book three. And so really, this psalm itself ends with verse 51, which speaks of the enemies of God mocking the footsteps of his anointed. And then nothing. No real, re- no real resolution. No real answer. And I love the way that Old Testament scholar John Golden Gay puts it as he is commentating on the end of this psalm. And he says, this psalm stops instead of closes because that reflects the reality of the situation. Because as we get to the end of the psalm, the author has moved from anger to questioning and crying out to God, how long until he remembers his promise? How long until he shows himself faithful? How long until he again acts out of this promised steadfast love? 
And these questions end abruptly as from the perspective of the author. There is no answer to these questions in sight. There is no answer to immediately be found. But friends, the joy of Christmas is that at Christmas, we celebrate the answer to this question. God has not met our questions with silence. While this psalm may have an abrupt ending, the plan of God does not. Instead, he answered those questions in a more powerful way than we or the author could have ever anticipated. Because the question raised by the author, raised by all of us, is answered in the birth of Jesus. A popular song that we sing during Christmas is Silent Night. And the age-old joke surrounding this song is that it likely wasn't a quiet or silent night because babies tend not to be very quiet. Many of you are parents in the room and you know this very well. But also, this night was not silent because the birth of Jesus was an announcement to the entirety of the cosmos that God had come into the world. That the long-awaited Messiah had come to redeem his creation and to rescue his people. And so, where is God? He's in a manger in Bethlehem. A light shining in the darkness so that all who trust in him can have eternal life. Where is this king? Where is this offspring of David who would rule forever? He's ruling right now. Jesus is the offspring of David, but he didn't ascend his throne through political or military victory as a psalmist thinks he would, but instead he defeated the powers of sin and death on the cross. Enemies far greater than any foreign king or invading army. And then he rose again, showing his complete and utter victory over them. God had never forsaken his steadfast love. God has never turned his back on his promise or his people. Even as early as the Garden of Eden, in the very opening pages of scripture, we see that God's promised that while sin had broken creation, that, he, that there would be one who would crush the serpent's head, who would break this curse of sin. And so while I titled this point, Love Restored, that itself was all a setup because the love of God was never in doubt. There was nothing more sure in this life or the life to come than the love of God. But instead, it is often our understanding of God's love that needs to be restored. And when we have these moments of not being able to square God's love with the events going on in the world around us or the events going on in our lives, there is no clearer or better place to look than to Jesus. God in flesh, who himself experienced pain and grief and hunger and uncertainty, who was mocked, who was plotted against, and who died bearing the weight of sin. That is God's love on display. And that is God's love for you. And so this morning, God's love doesn't need restoring, but maybe yours does. Maybe you begin to think that God doesn't care or that he is not as good as you once thought he was. Or maybe things are going pretty well for you and you haven't even considered God's love for a long, long time. 
So let me challenge you to take time today and tomorrow as we celebrate the birth of Jesus to consider the depths of God's love for you. And if you ever doubt it, if you feel like it's been lost, then look to Jesus who was born in this world to live and die and raise again so that you can live also. And let this love of God, let his love for you restore your own. Let's pray. Father, restore our love. Our love can often be so fleeting and so empty, but through your spirit, let us hold fast to the love that you have shown us in Jesus. And Father, I asked those in the room who right now are doubting your love for them, who can't see how it's true, who can't see how your promises are real. I pray they would behold Jesus and see him to be true and good and the way to life. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.